here. But thank you all, and happy anniversary, yes, it's about seven years that we've been meeting in this space, that's a pretty big deal. Seven years feels like long enough, doesn't it? That's a good number, we can cut it off there. Yeah, so this is our last month, we're very excited, and here we are. Uh, thank you all for being here this Sunday. Um, I do say that every week, and every week, I mean it. It's so awesome that you're here with us. There's so many things you could have done with your Sunday morning, but you chose to be here. So thank you so much for that. We are in uh, the middle of a five-part message series. That's what we do here at Hope. We preach in a series, talk about a topic for a number of weeks. And this series is called Shifting Focus because as we leave this theater, this is the end of one season and the beginning of a new season, which is a wonderful thing in the life of a church. And some of you have already said, oh, I'm going to be sad to leave. Isn't that strange? <laughs> this feels like home. And that's okay, because this is the end of something, but the beginning of something new and something wonderful. And so we're looking forward to that. And as we move on to this something new, we're going to be shifting our focus as a church. And so if you take a look at your bulletin, you can see where we've come from so far. Last week, uh, we talked about making invitations, really, and I have been encouraging you, very transparently encouraging you, to invite people to join you in worship on Easter Sunday. Uh, that's our official grand reopening day. Uh, it's a wonderful time to invite people to worship with you. Uh, Christmas and Easter, those two times during the year where you might actually get a yes when you extend that invitation. So, so go for it. Your odds have increased. Go for it. It's a wonderful thing to do. And it's great. And it's something that we all as Christians, you know, church people, if you hang out in a church long enough, you start to get the sense that inviting people to worship with you is something you're supposed to do. And that's fine. And that's good. And that's great. But as we discussed last week, there's a bigger invitation that we are exposed to, supposed to extend to the people in our lives, and that's the invitation to salvation, an invitation to meet Jesus, an invitation to experience Jesus, an invitation to experience the gospel. That's the real thing that we need to focus on as believers, inviting the people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior, inviting them to get to know Jesus, experience the gospel, and receive salvation in Him. And yes... Part of that experience of meeting Jesus does and often does include inviting someone with you to worship on Easter Sunday or whatever Sunday it is. And so, yes, that's part of it, but that's only one part of the bigger picture of what we are supposed to be about. And so we're going to continue to, as we go on, clarify our guest list that we talked about that last week a little bit, figure out who is it that we collectively as a church are supposed to invite to meet Jesus What's our responsibility? What's your responsibility as an individual? What's our responsibility collectively? Who are we supposed to be singling out and targeting and inviting? And so as we go on, we'll narrow down that guest list. Um, several years ago, back in 2011, uh, there was a book that came out. It was written by a, a pastor named Rob Bell. And um, Rob Bell was the founding pastor of Mars Hill Church and wrote some books that I really appreciated. Uh, he... Um, created a small group curriculum series called NUMA, which was wonderful, and I really appreciated his contributions to the church. But then in 2011, this book came out that he wrote called Love Wins, and in that book, it's, by the way, great title, right? But in that book, he writes about hell. I'm like, okay, well, I wasn't expecting to read about hell in a book called Love Wins. <laughs> but he has a, a take on hell, a unique take on hell, and in this book, he wrote that hell is not forever, and that eventually people that are sent to hell will eventually be restored and brought to God, and that hell is just a temporary place of punishment. And so, oh, I can see your faces. Where are we going with this? 
And so when this book came out, there was a mixed response <laughs> within Christianity, okay? Um, some people thought, well, this is a great thing. Some people thought, what's going on here? Um, that's all within the Christian bubble, really. I don't know if this book made any kind of waves or ripples or got any attention from the world outside of the church. I don't know. I don't know. But within the Christian community, there was, there was some division. Now, some people, some Christians thought, well, listen, we are so uncomfortable with the idea of hell, the concept of hell, and now we finally have a legitimate pastor who knows his stuff, and he's an excellent student of Scripture, telling us that this is just a temporary thing. And so some Christians gravitated toward this book and gravitated towards this teaching because, like, this is the thing that makes us so uncomfortable, right? We don't like the concept of eternal damnation, nor should we. We should not be comfortable with that, right? We shouldn't be. Preachers don't like preaching about it. Teachers don't like teaching about it. Nor, why, why would we want that? I mean, there are some exceptions to that. Every once in a while, you hear about a preacher who's very passionate, loves to preach about hell, loves to preach about hell. What's going on here? Several years ago, there was a video clip making the rounds of this preacher in the church talking about hell and talking about how all the people who persecuted the church, they're going to end up in hell one day, and I'm glad. And all the congregation is like, yeah. What? What? You can't get any further away from the heart of God. Hell is a reality. It is. We should not be comfortable with it. But the fact that that this exists and that some people will choose not to be saved, this breaks the heart of God. Listen to these scriptures. 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter is talking to a group of Christians. They're just waiting for Christ to come back and make all things new. They're, they're waiting for that day for him to finally and fully establish his kingdom. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, humankind. He is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish. That's not the heart of God. He does not want any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The heart of God, the desire of God is for everyone to receive salvation, for everyone to repent. He takes no delight in punishing his children. Parents in the room, do you delight when you have to discipline your children? Children, that's the big secret that you might not know about. When we parents discipline you, we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. But this is a whole other scale with God. Listen to this passage, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. This is Paul writing to Timothy who's becoming a pastor. It says this. Let me just read from uh, 1 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 3. First, first 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. And come to a knowledge of the truth. And so when you do have a pastor or a preacher or someone who's excited about the idea of people being punished for all eternity, something is fundamentally wrong in that individual's heart because that is not the heart of God. And so Rob Bell writes this book, puts it out there. And some Christians that are uncomfortable with hell, they say, okay, great. Finally, we don't have to believe in hell anymore. We can believe it's just a temporary thing. But other Christians say, hang on a second. We might not be comfortable with the idea of hell. We may not want this to exist, but how can you read the Bible literally and normatively and deny that hell is forever? It just doesn't, this, this whole idea of, of hell being temporary does not align with Scripture. How can you believe that the Bible is the Word of God 
and, and somehow erase the concept of hell. It doesn't add up. And you see what Rob Bell did, how he, how he kind of worked this whole thing out, is he, he does not have what you would call a high view of Scripture, kind of has like maybe a medium or a low view of Scripture, right? Doesn't believe that it's the absolute source of truth universally for all people. So he took a, had kind of a low view of Scripture, and if you have a high view of Scripture, which we do here at Hope Community Church, right? We believe that what the Bible records, whether we like it or not, whether we're comfortable with it or not, is true. Not every church feels that way. Not every church in Ridley Park believes that. And if you want, you can talk to me after the service, and I can tell you, well, this church here, that church, they don't, they don't believe that the Bible is the final, absolute authority on what is real and what is not. We do believe that here. And so we find ourselves as a church collectively in that camp of saying, thank you, Rob Bell, for making an effort, but what you've put out there does not align with what God's word says. I get why you're uncomfortable with it, but it doesn't align with the will or the word of God. Let's take a little break here right now. Remember Say by the Bell when Zach would do the timeout thing, right? <laughs> timeout and everybody freeze in place. I like that. Let's take a break. Come on, join me over here for a little aside moment, okay? Listen, <clears throat> listen, side moment. This is not a message about hell, okay? This is not a message about hell. That's not what we're talking about today. But I have to give you some context about hell. I've got to give you some information so that we can have a deeper appreciation of our responsibility as believers. So I've got to get, we've got to cover this content. We have to, all right? Please, stay with me today. I know this is tough, but by the end of the message, we're going to land someplace very positive, very wonderful. So stay with me. Avoid the temptation of tuning out, right? We're going to get somewhere positive together. Time back in. All right. So culturally, culturally, there are some ideas about the afterlife and about heaven or a place of paradise or hell and a place of damnation. There are some ideas that exist about these things. And culturally, and not just in this generation and not just in this culture, all throughout time, there's been this, this idea that kind of makes sense on a logical level. That if, right, if there is an afterlife, right, and this is just a, a worldview type thing, if there is an afterlife, then good people who die should go to a good place. And bad people who die should go to a bad place. That's the idea. That righteous people, it's another word for, for good or right, living a right way, that righteous people should go to heaven and wicked people should go to hell. Well, that just makes sense, doesn't it? That just adds up. And so there is logic to that. But there's also a flaw. There's also a flaw to all this. Hi, honey. That's my kid waving at me. There's also a flaw to this way of thinking about heaven and hell. If good is what's required to go to heaven, then how good is good enough? How good is good enough is the title of a book written by my man, Andy Stanley. You should pick it up, okay? It talks about this very thing. If good is what's required, then how good is good enough? That's the problem. And here's the thing about all of us human beings, what we all think. Everybody in this room, we think we're good. I'm a good person. We play the comparison game. Listen, I ain't never killed anybody. Uh, this guy over there and her over there. I mean, all the stuff that they've done, I'm better than that person. If you're playing the comparison game, then you can think of yourself as good. But we're, we're, what's, the, what's the point of reference? What are we comparing ourselves to? What is this? How good is good enough? Listen to this from the book of Romans, chapter 3. 
verse 23. For all have sinned. Okay, so this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the NIV translation. Other translations say, for all have sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. And so there is a standard set by God of what is good, what is righteous. There is a standard set by God. And Paul's teaching is that all of us, everybody in this room, everybody who's not in this room, everybody who's worshiping this morning, and everybody who's not, everybody who slept in, all of us fall short of God's standard for what is righteous and what is good. How good is good enough? Let's continue on here. Oh, this is fun. In Mark, Mark chapter 10, some people approach Jesus, and they're trying to be polite. And so they address him as good teacher. Good teacher, Jesus stops and says, why do you call me good? Mark 10, 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Wow, thanks, Jesus. No one is good. By the way, visitors, welcome to Hope Community Church, right? <laughs> no, one is, no one is good. You want, you want to know how good is good enough? Well, no one is good if you're going to take Jesus at his word. That's tough. How about this? Old Testament. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You want to have some fun this afternoon? Go look that up in Hebrew. Yikes. It's even more graphic and horrific in Hebrew. Any good deed, any good work that we're capable of compared to God's glorious standard, it's like filth. Filthy rags. Wow. Just, we're just boosting up our self-esteem, aren't we today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How? How is this possible? Listen, here's what's, here, here's what's up. All of us in this room, we are all capable. We are all capable of good deeds. We are all capable of good works. And not just begrudgingly, we are all capable of desiring good and good intentions, and good actions, and good follow-through. We're capable of all these things. But what Scripture tells us is that no amount of good that we do, or good that we want, or good that we desire is enough to fundamentally change our flawed human nature, our sinful state. No amount of good desires, good will, good intentions, good work can change our hearts and make us righteous in God's eyes. No one is good. <laughs> How good is good enough? What do we have to do here? Now, there's, there's hope. And those of you who are believers in this room, you know where I'm going. There is hope, but we can't do this on our own. Do you know, you know about Martin Luther? You know about him and all the story of Martin Luther? Fascinating, fascinating life that he lived. Martin Luther had this experience as a young man. He had this near-death experience. Uh, he was almost struck by lightning. Um, and if you've ever seen lightning up close, it's awe-inspiring. It's terrifying. I mean, there, you can check it out on YouTube to watch some of it. Just when it hits close, the fear of God will get jolted into your body for, for sure. It looks like a super, it seems like a supernatural event. It really does. So he has this near-death experience, and he becomes obsessed with his own salvation. What do I have to do? He becomes very hyper-aware of his mortality. By the way, we're all going to die. Spoiler alert. He becomes hyper-aware of his own mortality, and I have got to make sure that I get myself to heaven because I know I'm going to die. He was terrified of hell. What do I have to do? Born into the Catholic faith, which was really the, the, the big one church at that time, born into that. And so he tried different things, and he became a monk. 
And he tried a self-flagellation, tried to whip himself, and like, let me just suffer for the sake of Jesus, whatever that is. He'd go to confession, and there's writings. Um, some of his priests would write about, this is ridiculous. This guy comes in to confess. He walks down the hall, then he comes right back in to confess some more. He became obsessed with confession. He did whatever he could to try and make himself good. But it was never good enough. He never had peace in his heart, never had that assurance, okay, I'm sure I'm good enough. And then Martin Luther began to teach on the book of Romans, to teach other people. And if you really want to learn something, prepare to teach it to somebody else. So he began to to teach the book of Romans and study the book of Romans. And here's what he discovered. I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 3, which I quoted earlier. I'm going to read you some context around verse 23. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. But now apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So apart from following the rules of the Old Testament, apart from the law, apart from trying to do, the righteousness of God has been made known. So righteousness has been made known. Righteousness is possible, but not through the law. The righteousness is given. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't make yourself righteous. Instead, it's a gift that is given Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, it's in Jesus that we are made righteous. The gift of righteousness has been made available to us. Jesus suffered on the cross and died for us. He suffered in our place. And if we accept that gift, see, a gift given needs to be accepted. If we accept that gift, then when God looks down at us, he does not see us. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. That's how. We are righteous, not through our own efforts, but through the efforts of Jesus Christ. Let me go to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here's the reality. 100% of the population, all of us, left to our own devices, we all are destined for destruction, as the scripture says. We all are headed for hell. No amount of good deeds, that, this, it's just our default mode. We're all headed in this direction. Something has to intervene and knock us off that course. We can't, we can't get ourselves off this course. Something has to come along and knock us off that course so that we can be righteous and enter into heaven. And God has intervened. He has sent his son into this world to suffer on our behalf, to pay back the debt that we could not afford to pay back God. And that's how we can receive righteousness, is in Jesus Christ. Praise God. And this gift, as Paul clarifies, it has been freely extended to everyone. You can't get more inclusive than everyone. You can't get more inclusive than the world, for God so loved the world. In fact, let's take a look at John chapter 3. We spent some time there last week. We're going to look over these verses again. This is John chapter 3. We're going to begin with, with verse 16. Why not? That's, that's fun. That's the one we like. We referenced this last week. And in this passage, um, there's some disagreement over, over you know, people who study the Bible about what's going on here. Um, some people think that verse 16 is the words of Jesus, that he is still speaking. Jesus was in the middle of this conversation with Nicodemus. Some people think that that conversation ends in verse 15 and that John begins commentary in verse 16. 
and some people believe that Jesus continues to talk throughout these verses. I believe that Jesus has ended his conversation with Nicodemus in verse 15, and now John is giving us, the future readers of this text, some context and some explanation, right? And so here's what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes, or better, puts their trust in him as opposed to trusting in themselves, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So far, we love all this, right? So far, this is all good news. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so that's the tough end of this. Now, here's the question, right? Now, I got to tell you, I never thought I'd preach about this. I've talked about this in small group settings. I've talked about this in Bible studies. I've talked about this in one-on-one conversations. I never thought it would be a topic that I preached about, but hey, guess what? Today's the day because there's been a question that's been asked of me, and there's been a question that's been asked over the years. Is it possible to remain neutral on this whole accepting Christ thing, right? Is there a gray area? And it's a worthwhile question to ask. Because what we're told in John chapter 3 is that by accepting Christ as Savior, putting trust or belief in Him is salvation. That's what's required for salvation. And what we read in John chapter 3 is that rejecting Christ as Savior is what leads to damnation. It causes damnation. So there's accepting and there's rejecting. What about in the middle? Is there a middle? Some people ask about, well, what about children that pass, that die? Well, what happens to them? Uh Uh-oh. Answer that one, Pastor, right? Well, they didn't have a chance to accept Christ and all this. Well, there is just, some of you, I'm sure, have heard of this, this whole concept of the age of accountability. Does that term mean something to you? Okay. So there's this idea that only God, and only God knows what that age is, but, but they're children. And so it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to be safe, this concept of being safe in Christ. And what we know about God is that he does not desire anyone to perish. And what we know about God is that God is a God of love. And what we know about God is that God is a God of justice. So you tell me, take what we know about God and apply it to that question. Goodness gracious, I feel confident being able to tell you that God does the right thing. Come on. Come on. But what about people that have certain mental limits and they can't? Come on. God deals with them in a certain way. But then there's another question. The question, what about people in remote areas that have never heard the gospel? What about them? Okay, great question. John 14, 6, very well-known verse. This is at the Last Supper. So Jesus has, has told his disciples that they all know the way to the Father. They all know the way to his kingdom. And Thomas pipes up and says, uh, what's the way? He has the courage to speak up and say, what's the way? And Jesus answered John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here's what we need to know about people in that category. There's two ways to interpret that verse, and they're both correct, I believe. The one way to read those words or to interpret those words is Jesus saying, it's only by me that you can be saved. That's absolutely 100% accurate. It's only by Christ that we can meet the Father. You know what else it means? That it's entirely up to Jesus, Right? If someone's in that position where they've legitimately never been exposed to the gospel, then Jesus is the only one that has the authority to make that determination. It's kind of similar to people in the Old Testament days. All right, what about David, King David? He didn't know the mystery of the cross. He didn't accept Jesus as his Savior. Is he in hell right now? That was before the cross. But David, like so many Old Testament believers, they look forward to a mystery and put their faith in a mystery 
The words of David expressed time and time again, my hope is in the Lord. The Lord is my salvation. Did he understand what was going to happen? No. But he put his trust not in himself and his own capacity for goodness, but in God. So God deals with these people justly. Jesus, has the, he's the only one who has that authority, okay? And so again, we're talking about this gray area here. Is it possible to neither accept nor reject? When most people ask this question, they're not talking about those two categories. They're not talking about children. They're not talking about people who have never heard the gospel. They're talking about something else. When most people ask about this gray area, they're wondering, is it possible to be exposed to the truth of the gospel and remain neutral on it? I'm not going to accept. I'm not going to reject. This is... Most people in your life, this is where they are. I'm not going to accept because if I accept, how is that going to change my life? If I accept, I'm afraid of what that's going to turn me into. If I accept, what do I need to do differently? I got to reprioritize my life. I got to show up at a place on Sunday mornings. I got to start reading my Bible. I'm afraid to accept because I don't know how that's going to change me. That's a fair concern because it will change you for the better. I guarantee it. It's like the men's warehouse. I guarantee it. <laughs> it's a legitimate fear. It's a legitimate concern because it will change you. And so some people are exposed to the gospel of truth. I don't want to accept it because I don't know what this means. And yet I'm not so bold as to reject Christ as Savior because I don't know. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to weigh in. I'm not going to reject. Now, you've got some people in your life who have landed here who have said, I don't believe it. I don't believe that he's the Savior. I don't believe it. I don't believe in the gospel. I don't believe in the afterlife. I don't believe, I don't want none of it. They don't believe it. Some people, some. You might have some people in your life that have landed here. So here's the good news. That decision can be changed, praise God. There's always hope. Well, there's breath in your lungs and life in your body. There's always hope for that decision to be reversed, for it to be changed. But a lot of people in your life are trying to remain neutral. And they're, okay. they're not making fun of you for doing this. They're okay if you want to go to worship and if you want to do your Jesus-y stuff whatever. Hey, if that works for you, great. But I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, just there's the gospel over there, and I'm just going to act like I didn't hear it. And what's, hey, what's this over here? You know, just that kind of thing. That's the approach that most of the people in your life have taken. We're not talking about a theoretical group of people out there. I'm talking about faces and names that you know. Holy Spirit, bring those names into our minds right now. It's the people in your life trying to remain neutral. You can't remain neutral. Scripture tells us that all of us are destined for destruction without intervention. You cannot remain neutral. You cannot. Does that make sense? Let me make one point of clarification. It's one thing to be exposed to the truth of the gospel and shrink away and shrink away and shrink away and shrink away. It's another thing to be exposed to the reality of gospel, of the gospel, and to lean into it. Hang on a second. Wait a minute. You're telling me that God loves me. You're telling me that I can't save myself. You're telling me that there is a heaven. And you're telling me, whoa, this is a lot to take in. You're telling me that if I put my trust in Jesus, I can go to heaven. I don't know what to make of that. As I've been saying over the course of the past several weeks, that gospel message that so many Christians are just used to hearing, we've grown desensitized to it. It is a big, complicated message that needs to be unpacked and explored. And so it's one thing to shy away from it. I wish I didn't know about it. I'm going to pretend that this is fine. I'm going to go about my business. It is quite another thing to dive in and seek for answers. That's different. But at the end of that road of seeking answers, there needs to be an end. There needs to be a decision that's made. For some of you in this room, that's your story for years. 
Should I, should I say your names out loud? No, that, that wouldn't be you. What kind of church is this? I don't want to pick on anybody. Isn't that your story? You heard it. Hey, Jesus loves you. Whatever. That's fine. I don't know. Hey, maybe he does. I don't, know. I don't know. That's fine if you believe that. Whatever. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It sounds great. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure if it's true. Just kind of whatever. That was your story. I see your smiles. <laughs> it was your story. And then at a certain point, all right, let, let me see this out. All right, let me go back. Let me go back to this church services. Let me, let me hear some more. All right, let me, let me talk to some more people. Investigate, investigate, investigate until a decision was made. Yes, I do accept Jesus as Savior. That's, that's the story for so many of you in this room. In fact, over the past seven years, I've had the pleasure of watching that story unfold and, and being a part of your baptism as you came up here. Whoa, praise God. See, that's different. Seeking answers is different than shying away from the truth, trying to do this whole denial thing. We talked about that last week, how we can deny these, these really tough truths, trying just to avoid it. That's one thing, but to seek is something else. That's a wonderful thing to seek after that. And so, where does that leave us? Let's get back to the point at hand, trying to figure out who is it in our lives? Who is it in your life? Let's make this about you now. Who is it in your life that you need to extend an invitation to salvation, extend an invitation to meet Jesus? Who is it? Well, I'll tell you who. It's the people that are trying to stay neutral. It's the people in that category. They don't want to accept. They don't want to reject. Yeah, you can invite these people here too. Absolutely. Put them on your list, but I don't know if you have many of those in your life. Those who have rejected, yeah, put them on your invite list, but it's really, let's focus in on the people in this category. They're trying to remain neutral. Give them an invitation to meet Jesus. Bait them a little bit. Oh, man. I know that sounds... Give them a little taste of something. A little taste of something. Jesus was the master of baiting people. Give them a little taste, a little taste, a little taste. He'd show up and he'd say something unexpected. Well, I wasn't expecting that from Jesus. The value of unexpected is big. Does it kind of lure people? Lure, that sounds... Come on into my van, Lord. Not like, not like, not like that. Not like that. Just kind of bait people in with some, with some drop some truth nuggets along the path. Ooh, that's, that's tasty, all right? I don't know. You know, some of these things I don't rehearse in advance, you know what I mean? A little, little trail of breadcrumbs, right? Yeah. And so, or, or Reese's Pieces if you're an alien. We've, we've really derailed here. But to give people an opportunity, again, to give those people in there who are trying to stay neutral, give them an opportunity to be exposed to some of these truths about Jesus, exposed to elements of the gospel, this big message that's tough to unpack, exposed to these truths about God and how he loves us. Give them that opportunity. You may have noticed in your bulletin this morning, you've got two very fancy index cards. Did you get some index cards in your bulletin? Okay. If you didn't get two, or if you didn't get one, or if you don't have, we've got some on that little bar area right back there um, on your way out. So there's two, you should have received two index cards. Let me tell you what you're going to do with one of them, okay? Here's what I'd like you to do with this very fancy index card, right? This is for you, and no one else but you. This is for you to begin writing down the names and we've done stuff like this before, but this is a little bit different. Start writing down the names of the people in your life. Not, not those randos out there that you don't know, okay? God loves them as much as he loves everybody else, but I'm talking about you. This is about you now. The people in your life who are trying to stay neutral, start writing down their names. 
Now, that could be a very big list of people. So let's go ahead and make that more specific, shall we? Let's make this more specific. Who do you need to extend an invitation to salvation? Let's make that. This is really easy. Ready? Here we go. If you're here this morning, and if you're married, and your spouse isn't with you, your homework is done. <laughs> isn't that easy? That's the name you put on the top of your list. It might, that might be the only name. That might be it. That's, that's it. That's the person that you're going to extend that invitation. You know it. You know it. Listen, you're not alone. We've got people, and if you're listening online, we've got people all over who are in that situation where they believe and a spouse doesn't, or one of the, one of the partners believes and the other's kind of in that neutral zone. Listen, this is the person you love the most, is your spouse in this world. At least they should be, right? Extend that invitation to them. And don't do that thing where it's like, well, I'm pretty sure. I think they know. I think they know. I think they know Jesus. Like, don't, listen, don't, don't do that. You got to be sure. This is the person you love the most. Guys, I've done the funerals. I've done the funerals where you don't know. And when the spouse is there and the family's there and you want to give some words of comfort, but you can't give false hope. It's like we're all sitting around like, I don't know. Did this person ever express that Jesus is their Savior? No. Can we hope that they did? Yes. Do we know one way or the other? We don't know. No assurance. No assurance. You know, my father died years ago. It was very sudden. It was very tragic. I carry that pain with me every day. And if you've lost a loved one, you know what that's like. You know what that's like. But you know what else I carry with me? A peace. Because we know that he accepted Jesus as Savior. And so if you're married, if you have any question about it, don't, don't, don't live in denial. Your spouse is the first person and maybe the only person on your list. That's who you need to extend an invitation to salvation. Who else? All right. How about those of you in this room who are in serious romantic relationships, headed for marriage, but your significant other is trying to stay neutral on this whole thing? He's okay. She's okay. She's okay with it. He's okay with it. You can do your Christian thing, but they're trying to stay neutral. That's who you invite. That's who you invite. You know, Paul gives us this warning. In 2 Corinthians, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And really what Paul is saying, listen, we're supposed to have relationships with people who aren't believers. That's how we have influence. When it comes to a really deep friendship or a romantic relationship, you can't be yoked or tied together with someone who does not believe. It's uneven. All right? There's the imagery of two animals being tied together. And if one's taller than the other, they're not going to walk in a straight path. They're going to walk around in a circle, right? It doesn't work out. And so what do we Christians do? When we're young and we're dating, and I did this too, when we're young and we're dating, we read this verse and we say, Paul, I appreciate your insight. I shouldn't be unequally yoked, but I love her, but I love him, and it's going to be different for me. All right, well, listen, there are several of you, maybe listening online, maybe in this room, you're in a romantic relationship and you're unequally yoked. Here's what you do. That's the person on your list. If you really do love that person, then extend to them an invitation to salvation. If you're, not gonna, if you're not willing to do that, then you don't love that person. You don't love your significant other. If you don't care about whether or not they go to heaven or hell, then you don't love that person, okay? That's some harsh truth, right? Listen, this is our last month in the theaters. My last month to be really harsh before we move on to something else, all right? But that's it. But I love her. But I love him. Do you really? Prove it. Not to me. Not even to God. Prove it to yourself. Extend an invitation to salvation because if you're not willing to do that, you don't love that person. 
You're just using them. Boom. Sorry. Sorry. That's how it is. So there we go. We're working on our list. All right. We're having a good time, aren't we? So if you're married, if you're married and your spouse is not a believer, that's the name put on your list. If you're in a serious relationship with someone that's headed towards marriage and yet you're with somebody who doesn't believe, that's the name that's on your list. Who else? Parents. Your children. You love them. If you have any doubt, don't do it. Don't fool yourself. Well, I think my son knows. Well, I think my daughter knows. Well, I think uh, don't do it. Don't do it. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Don't do it. Make sure. Right? So parents, your children, maybe you've got grandchildren, maybe you've, you've got kids that are married or adults that are married and, and your in-laws, people in your family, in other words, adult children in the room, your parents, you love them. These are your family, your brothers, your sisters. Just start there and that could be enough. And so we're looking at spouses, significant others, family members, children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents, all of that. And then beyond that, the people that you just love the most. If you've got people that you love that are trying to stay neutral, those are the names you put on your list. And here's what you're going to do with this list. And here's the good news. Right? And here's where we come to a wonderful, fun, positive ending. Here's what you're going to do on this list, okay? You're not going to call them today. You're not going to panic over the names on this list. You're not going to go crazy, well, okay, I've got to somehow explain the four spiritual laws, but I don't know what they are, and I've got to somehow give a gospel message, and I've got to look up something online, I've got to call. No. No panic at all. None. Step one. The biggest most powerful step you can take. And in some cases, it's the only step you'll need. Step one, pray. Pray. Pray for these people. Take a look at the scripture passage in your bulletin. This is a good one. This is at the Last Supper. Jesus talking to his disciples. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. What are the works of Jesus Christ? It's the work of salvation. Only he can die on the cross for us, but we take an active part in the ministry of reconciliation. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do. You see these words? And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name. And I will do it. Now, what's happened over the years is we Christians, we have taken that. We said, well, let's just kind of use that as like a magic phrase at the end of our prayers, right? We'll pray a whole bunch of stuff, regardless of whether or not it's in the will of God, and then we'll just tag on that phrase in Jesus' name at the end, and bada bing, bada boom, Jesus has to do it. That's not how it works. When Jesus is saying that we pray in his name, by the way, you're allowed to use that phrase. I do. In Jesus' name we pray. Man, there's nothing wrong with that. But when Jesus says that, whatever you pray in my name means according to his will, in his name, by his name. In other words, Jesus is saying this, if you're going to come before me and ask me to do what I want to do, I'm going to do it for you in Jesus' name. And here's what we know about God. And here's what we know about all the people that are going to show up on your list. God, listen, all these people, God loves them more than you do. He desires their salvation more than you possibly could. He loves them. And Christ tells us, you just go before the Father and you pray these things in his name. Listen, we're not supposed to say, God, I just want you to smite all my enemies and I pray this in Jesus' name, okay? That's not how it works. 
God wants us to ask him. I want you to ask. I want you to care. I want you to participate. I want you to love one, or, one another enough to pray for one another. Put the names on. This is just for you. Don't show him by us. Put the names on the list and let God do the heavy lifting. Let God do what he already wants to do. He wants to redeem them. He wants to offer them. So he's already extended the gift. He wants them to receive it. So just pray. God, you want this more than I do. Your will be done. God, these people on my list, you love them more than I can. And that feels weird because I love them so much. I love these people so much, but I know you love them more. Father God, you want to save them, Father God. You sent Jesus to save them, Father God. You've extended to each one of these people the gift of eternal life. Let them receive it. Change their hearts. Let them receive it. And Father God, show me my place in this. What should I say? What should I do, if anything? Show me, God. I'm willing to be used by you, but God, you do the heavy lifting. God, you do the heavy lifting. You do what you want to do. You accomplish your will. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter how clever you are, how educated you are when it comes to sharing the gospel. You can make an eloquent presentation. You can get all your facts right. You can make an airtight case. But if the Holy Spirit isn't moving, that whole thing is not going to work. Let God do. Listen, pray for these people and let God do what only he can do. You'll have your part to play. But let God do the heavy lifting. Let God do what only he can do. Is there something after prayer? Is there something about beyond prayer? Sure, we can talk about that in the following weeks. But prayer, like I said, is the first step. It's the biggest step. And in some cases, it's the only step. Let God do the heavy lifting. Sometimes God doesn't need you to do anything beyond pray. Because other times he does. I don't know. I don't know what's gonna, how it's going to work out for you and your people on your list. But let God do the heavy lifting. Take it to God in prayer first. Now, you have a second index card. All right? Now, let me just pause for a minute, okay? Should we go back over here? Time out. I know how this works, okay? I used to sit where you're sitting, and the pastor come up with these things, and I think, hey, that's a great idea. I'm not doing it, all right? Listen, I know. I know that the majority of people in this room aren't going to do this. But the reason I'm saying this is for the few faithful who will, who take this whole being ministers of the reconciliation seriously. Do you have to do this? I don't have any teeth. I can't force you to do this, right? This is for you. You choose to do it or you don't. But I encourage you to do this, okay? Time back in. So the second card, second card is optional. Second card is a duplicate of the first card. Second card, this is up to you. Second card can go into this nifty looking box here, okay? And when you put this second card, your duplicate list in this box, it is no longer confidential. If you put that second card, that duplicate list in this box, we as a collective will join you in praying for the names on this list. We've done something like this before, but we've kept it confidential. Put the names in the list. We're not going to read them. We're just going to hold up for God. God, you know the names. This is different. This time, once you put this in here, you're going public with your list. These are the names. So whatever information you put in this box is going to be dispersed. Our prayer team on Sunday morning at 10 a.m., they're going to be praying for your people. This is optional. I know this is weird. Oh, it's kind of icky. I want to keep this to myself. Listen, okay, fine. But you are not on your own to do this. You've got backup. You've got a church family. And if you're willing to let us help you, we want to. We want to join you in praying for these people. And listen, I'm doing this too. 
All right, I've got the advantage of knowing what I was going to preach about before today. So I've got my list, and I'm going to put my list in there too, all right? I'm going to do it. I know it's kind of like making things a little bit more personal. I'm putting myself out there and all that. And maybe it lends itself to some accountability because people could ask me, hey, Josh, how's so-and-so doing? Listen, I get it. I get it. This is optional. This is for you. You're not on your own. And it's going to be right up here. You're not on your own to do this. Let God do the heavy lifting. Just pray. He wants wants to save them. He wants to. Let God do the heavy lifting. And if you're willing, let us help you. Let your church family help you too. In fact, let's spend some time praying right now. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your desire to to redeem us all. None of us None of us are worthy. None of us are worthy, and yet you've loved us anyway. You have loved us with this unfathomable love, this remarkable gift. Father God, for all of us in this room who have had the opportunity to hear the gospel and receive it, I just thank you. Thank you for the people in our lives that communicated this truth to us. Thank you for your patience and grace with us as we sorted through the reality of the gospel. Thank you for bringing us to a place where we were able to accept it. Father, for all the names that are about to be written down on these index cards, for all these names, the people that we love, we love them. We love them, but not as much as you. We desire for them to be saved, but not as much as you do. And so, Father God, do what it is that only you can do. Do the heavy lifting. Allow these individuals to hear the gospel, to make sense of the gospel, to be tempted to hear more of the gospel, to make sense of the gospel, and ultimately to receive the gospel message and receive salvation in you, Jesus Christ. We pray for our loved ones. Father God, use us as individuals, as your church. Use us as you see fit to communicate your gospel in word and in action. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite the band to come back up on stage. And again, listen, no one's going to force you. No one's going to know. But I do encourage you to take the time today before you leave, this afternoon over lunch. If so desired, you can share your list with your spouse so you can be praying together. That's great. But this is for you. This is what it looks like to be evangelists, okay? I'm not asking you to go door to door, knock on random strangers' door and say, hey, listen, do you know Jesus as your Savior? You can do that, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you to love your loved ones enough to pray for them. Thank you.